flu, the vaccine, is only a little over 50% effective in preventing hospitalizations. COVID, the vaccination is much more effective. The low estimate is 90-ish percent in preventing hospitalizations. Welcome to the Rain Insights on COVID-19 podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. Let's listen as Rain founder David Lawrence speaks with doctors Fred Southwick and Bill Lang for our weekly coronavirus update. Bill and Fred, uh, thanks again for joining us. Uh, it's been an eventful week in terms of the data, uh, ICUs being overrun in some parts of the United States. Uh, obviously, the FDA approval of the vaccine. Uh, maybe you can bring us quickly up to date, and then we have some specific topics to uh, chat about, that which are on the minds of many of our uh, network members. Well, the fact that it's finally approved, I think, is very, very positive because I do think this now gives uh, businesses the green light to mandate the vaccine. And as we've talked about before, uh, I wish that just talking to people would convince uh, almost all of them, but it doesn't seem to be the case. There are some people that are just resistant, and the only way to achieve significant herd immunity which is probably going to be in the 80, mid 80% range before we can quiet this uh, pandemic down in the United States, um, is going to, in my view, is going to require mandates. And now with an FDA-approved, fully approved vaccine, that uh, can take place. Unfortunately, the approval doesn't really change anything in utilization because the government came out fairly strongly and said that unlike with most approvals of other biologics or medications, it means that physicians can go off-label, as a saying is, to prescribe in any medically appropriate situation. The government's been fairly strong in saying, no, you still have to stick with the emergency use authorization, and we can enforce that because we own the vaccine. So that's fine, though, but it does it still gives the, the, the moral authority of the government and the independent panels, which I do also want to stress that the panels that are reviewing this are government-appointed, but they are independent uh, members, mostly coming out of the out of university research research university systems. Um, so it really does give a lot of uh, weight to the ability to say that these are are very well vetted vaccines. So apropos that, um, what might be the reasonable time horizon for a similar approval for the Moderna vaccine? and also very much on the minds of people who are returning to work, who have children. Do we see similar FDA approval for potentially 12 and under and administering the vaccine to some of the youngest uh, family members who are now going back to school and who are obviously at risk? And I think both of you have spoken about the increase in pediatric cases. So maybe you can share some insights around that issue. In terms of the Moderna, it's been consistently running right about a month behind Pfizer um, from the very first EUA. It's not quite a month, but from the first EUA and all the way through. Um, Pfizer, of course, is a much larger organization. They can afford to do more studies more rapidly. But uh, Moderna is not very far behind on their approval timeline. So probably late September would be a reasonable time to be expecting Moderna to be approved also. But again, it doesn't change anything in the use of the vaccine. And the fact that we now have an approved vaccine means that the people who are out there who truly wanted to wait until it was approved 
now they have they have no reason not to do it. Unfortunately, I think there's a lot of people out there who were just using that as the next excuse not to get a vaccine. Those people will uh, don't know how much it's going to help them. But in terms of the kids and the the kids, meaning the the next age group, which is the five to eleven age group. This is a very good place where my crystal ball was wrong. Um, I think if anyone goes back to the podcasts of earlier this year, you know, maybe mid-spring, I, I remember saying that that I really thought that we would have vaccine for kids and thinking, including school age, uh, grammar school age kids um, by September. Now, over the past uh, week to 10 days, we understand that the FDA has pushed back on both Pfizer and Moderna and said that they need larger studies to look at the uh, the fairly fairly rare um, incidents of myocarditis that occur in kids after they get the primarily young boys after getting the mRNA vaccines. We're still talking about single digit cases per million, but it's when you're giving it to millions of people, it's not trivial. So there is a lot of uh, consternation about that because in order to recruit these additional numbers, it's going to push the studies back into the the end of the first semester, um, basically the, the the new year before approval for the five to eleven year uh, age group would be on the horizon. Yeah, Bill Bill has got that very nicely summarized. the The concern I have is we should be weighing the incidence of myocarditis if you develop COVID nineteen versus the incidence of uh, myocarditis among those who receive the vaccine. And if you do that, uh, my understanding it's about the ratio is 18 to one. In other words, you're 18 times or somewhere a much higher risk, let's say that, of getting myocarditis from COVID-19 than you would ever get from the vaccine. And we do know from the age 12 to 16 that the efficacy of the vaccine is virtually 100% protection. Uh, you never can say 100%, but very close to 100% protection. And therefore, the risk of myocarditis from COVID-19 would be eliminated. And just as a reminder to the audience, could you maybe define that condition, Fred? Um, because Myocarditis? Uh, yes, yes. Yes, it's inflammation of the heart muscle. Um, for reasons we really don't understand, it appears the immune system does attack the heart muscle and causes some inflammation. Now, in mo it's predominantly in young men, uh, young males, and it's usually self-limited uh, five to six days and then resolves. There are very rarely it can continue on, but the virus itself is known to have a much higher incidence of myocarditis, inflammation of the heart muscle than the vaccine, and therefore, the risk benefit is uh, is very good. In other words, the risk of of developing myocarditis from the vaccine is much much lower than the risk of developing heart inflammation as a consequence of COVID nineteen. Okay, and as both of you have been very eloquent in articulating, as both of you have eloquently articulated, the process of managing this disease is a risk management exercise, weighing costs versus benefits, risks versus rewards. And to that end, Fred, you spoken in prior weeks about the increasing number of pediatric cases that are coming in. 
And maybe you can enlighten the audience just in terms of what you're seeing on a nationwide basis, and particularly in Florida, where the mask mandate continues to be a hot debate issue, uh, particularly as kids are going back to school. Well, I can particularly speak to our area. Um, We've had in previous outbreaks in in December and the earlier ones last summer, uh, we had virtually no pediatric cases. Uh, At at UF Health, uh, we've had an average of 12 to 16 cases in the hospital uh, at all times, and about a third to to half of those have ended up in the MICU. So uh, there is definitely an increased incidence. I think it's probably because the Delta variant, you get so much higher concentration of virus when you spread that even though children have a stronger immediate immune response, innate immune response than adults, it's not sufficient to overcome uh, the very high concentrations of virus associated with the Delta variant. And so so comparing where we are now to where we were six months ago, some very careful studies back then looked at the rate of of infection in kids and said that, you know, it really is probably about the same as it is across the rest of the population, but kids don't get symptomatic because of their their innate immunity, as Fred was saying. Um, Today, as of last week, 22.4% of new COVID diagnoses were in kids. So... Yes, kids are getting at about the same rate. The the percent of of pediatric population is twenty two point six percent of the population, so almost identical to their their presence in the population. But as opposed to six months ago, now they are getting symptomatic. It's as we're seeing with Delta. Delta just it produces more of a viral load, and the more of a viral load you have, the more sick you're going to be. Um, it statistically. Kids that are symptomatic with COVID-19 are no more likely now to get hospitalized than they were before. But before, they weren't getting symptomatic at all, so they weren't even getting diagnosed. But now that they are getting diagnosed, they are getting sick, and they are getting hospitalized at high rates. And that's exactly what what Fred is seeing. Both of you have been particularly good about navigating through the politics of the pandemic. And if you were advising principals of schools and parents of students returning to schools, what would you be advising them to do, both in terms of personal protection, but also how to prepare a school for the reopening? I'll start, Bill, and you can uh, fill in. This is a big challenge. Uh, the everyone, uh, I, I would encourage at this point uh, mandating vaccines for all those that are eligible before they can come into school, uh, because that's the only way we can really efficiently control this Delta variant, which is so much more highly infectious. Secondly, uh, until the pandemic uh, quiets down, it would be important to maintain mask wearing in, in, the, in the schools. Now, there was one particular episode that was just highlighted in the MMWR, the CDC report, of a, of a teacher, I think it was in Texas, who uh, was not vaccinated, who uh, took off her mask for two minutes to read a story to the children in her classroom and infected uh, a high percent, all those in, almost all those in the first row and most of those in the second row, became infected because 
uh, she did not wear a mask and because she was not vaccinated. So I, if we're going to have schools that are actually going to stay open and not be closed for quarantines, period, really repeatedly, it's going to be important that everyone who is eligible be vaccinated and everyone to wear a mask uh, to protect uh, the students that can't be vaccinated. And as people who have been listening to this podcast know, I have not been as hard over on masking um, as Fred has. However, I really think that we there is no evidence that masks don't work. I feel fairly confident that that masks do have a have a benefit, and we know that not having kids in school is very very detrimental to these kids, much more so than this the problems that we may have with communications difficulties um, with the, especially younger kids who are who are wearing masks. So I do think that in order to maximize the ability to have in person education that for now at least at least in areas where the rate of covid in the community is at the substantial level or higher which is a 7.12 cases per day or 50 cases per week that kids should be vaccinated i should be should be in masked um, and then in terms of the vaccination, um, you know, it's getting into the whole uh, individual rights and parents' rights issues and all of that. But clearly, whatever can be done to maximize the rate of vaccination, it has been shown to be extremely safe in kid, in children, especially so far in the, the 12 to 18-year age group. The safety profile of the vaccine is incredible, even including the myocarditis issues. Uh, so I do fully support getting kids vaccinated however we can. I might not go, go quite as far as, as mandating it because I've seen issues with mandating vaccines and not having as much help as you think that it might have. But we clearly need to do whatever we can to get kids vaccinated. Let me go back to uh, the school issue, which is if you were the principal of a school, what would you be putting in place uh, beyond the issue of vaccinations? Just from a physical plant standpoint uh, to help protect teachers as well as students. And sort of similarly, if you were a parent of a returning child, what should you be looking for if not demanding of the school? Bill, do you want to start? You- I, I mean, I can start. You want, I mean, the, the, the idea of, of social distancing to the greatest extent possible is important. Um, the classroom is, is tough, but you have you move the desks as far apart as possible, spread things out through the classrooms. Um, that's difficult because that's based on the, on the various school district and how much money they have to have the, the low student-to-teacher ratios. And then doing things like for lunch periods, um, moving people out side as much as you can, weather permitting, of course, but then dividing up lunch periods and spreading spreading kids out in the classroom to the in the lunchroom to the greatest extent possible. Um, it's because that in the lunchroom is one of the big issues because everybody is there eating and everyone has their mask off to eat and yet they're if they're crowded, there's, that's going to be a has the potential to be a super spreader event. So you have to be very careful in that setting. That's probably one of the biggest things that you can do. Um, one of the big issues is going to be how do you do interscholastic athletics? But fortunately, over the past year, we've developed a lot of experience at every level in how you can safely do interscholastic athletics, including contact sports. Um, so schools need to be paying attention to the requirements to, to do that. Um, and there's going to be a risk benefit in watching what happens with 
infections and hospitalizations in kids um, as we get into the school year will inform that decision. Is there a level of hospitalizations where you start saying, you know, maybe it's not worth it? There may be. We, we're, not, we're not there yet, but schools need to be paying attention to what they need to do to decrease risk. Yeah, Bill, Bill that was an excellent summary. I, I uh, really can't add uh, very much to that. The only thing is, I think when it comes to the athletes, I think vaccination is really, really important because there is, most sports do have some close contact and you can't be uh, wearing masks when you're breathing hard, uh, exercising. So uh, the only way really to protect all the athletes is through vaccination. Uh, I do want to follow up about the issue of ventilation for classrooms and schools in general to see whether you have any thoughts on that. Uh, I note that here in New York, uh, a story is breaking. The city invested approximately 43 or $45 million to buy ventilation equipment for the schools. And now that equipment, the efficacy of that equipment is being challenged. Given what we've learned with Delta, some of our prior thinking may be out the window a little bit, so to speak. So we have to go back to what we learned over the previous 15, 18 months prior to Delta, and that is we need to do everything you can to increase air exchange, to um, increase outdoor makeup air, um, to increase filtration where you can. But the, the value of spot ventilation and spot filtration um, is, is still never been demonstrated. There's a lot of money that has gone into that because it's something very, very obvious that you can do is to put a HEPA filter into a, into a room and say that it's really helping. The reality is that the portable HEPA filters have significant limitations. Um, they're probably better than nothing, but are they that valuable? And the data that we do have is the way that you can maximize the safety in an indoor environment with the existing HVAC system maximizing airflow, maximizing outdoor air makeup, ensuring that your the existing filters are cleaned regularly, um, the addition of specialized UV and HEPA filters to an existing system may not be beneficial because it decreases the, they oftentimes decrease the efficiency of the system. Uh, so many people are being sold these very expensive systems that may not work as well as they're being sold on. They need to have an independent HVAC expert, um, heating, ventilation, and air conditioning expert take a look at the data and make sure that whatever is going in there does, in fact, increase airflow increase uh, outdoor air makeup and and does increase filtration without decreasing airflow. Um, so those are the biggest things. School buildings are hard because school buildings, like so many public buildings, don't have large expensive uh, HVAC systems, oftentimes because they don't operate in the, the summertime, so they haven't spent as much effort on, on ventilation. Older schools primarily using um, uh, radiator type heating which has no ventilation in that setting opening the windows as much as possible is about the best ventilation that you're going to be able to do the key is the exchange rate of of new air and uh, normally it should be a, a minimum of three exchanges per hour but ideally it should be somewhere between six and eight exchanges per hour to really make sure that the uh, aerosol is cleared from the air in, in the schoolroom. And and that was, we know, that worked very well prior to Delta. 
it's just that with Delta, which with so much more aerosol, we just don't know if that is is going to make a huge difference. It will make a difference, and there is no reason not to do it. But we're we're going to have to see what the data shows us over the next couple of months. Bill, that's a really good point uh, because the number of virions in the in these particles in the aerosol is somewhere between a hundred to a thousand times higher. And therefore, you really need a more rigorous filtration system and higher exchange to dilute out that amount of virus. So it may not be that effective. And and that's why um, I'm pushing everyone. The vaccine is the ultimate solution because mass and and exchange of air are not going to be as effective with the Delta variant. I think it's always useful to put things in perspective to the experience that people have had over their life. With, if we, when we compare influenza to COVID, there is some degree of an apples to orange comparison, but they are at least are both fruits. Um, flu in an average season creates 35 to 40 million cases of influenza that are diagnosed. There's probably a lot more than that, but that's how many are estimated uh, by CDC. Of that, it creates about 400,000 hospitalizations. Of those hospitalizations, a quarter of them are in immunized people. Uh, now, just like with COVID, it is skewed towards the upper end of the age group, but it's still about a quarter of the hospitalizations are due to are in immunized people, so 100,000 hospitalizations. That's because the vaccine is only a little over 50% effective in preventing hospitalizations. Now, let's take COVID. Prior to Delta, but even to some extent with Delta, the, the vaccination is much more effective at preventing hospitalizations than flu vaccination is. You know, with, with Delta, the low, estimate, the low estimate is 90-ish percent in preventing hospitalizations. Most estimates are somewhere around 95% effective in preventing hospitalizations. You still get infected, but you're not getting hospitalized if you're vaccinated. What that has meant is out of the 38 million flu of uh, COVID cases that we've had diagnosed in the United States. Again, that's an undercounting, but the, so it is also for flu. Um, there have only been right around 10,000 hospitalizations in vaccinated people. So same number of cases, but the, the hospitalizations are incredibly lower if you are vaccinated. So another reason why vaccination is so important, even more so than it is with flu. Excellent context uh, for everyone's thinking about this big topic now is the third injection or what some people refer to as the booster. And when should people get it? Uh, there have been various reports based upon sources in the government, anywhere from eight months to six months to possibly a year. Uh, what is the data showing? What is the data from Israel showing? And how should people begin to think about this? And then relatedly, uh, many people are taking these antibody tests and would love to have your views on the efficacy of those tests. Well, just addressing your question on the Israel portion of that, uh, in Israel, there was some data that, especially in a population that was skewed elderly, that without the booster, the effectiveness of the vaccine had dropped into the high 30s. Once they have given the, the uh, booster, which they have focused on the older age group, the booster shot increased the efficacy of vaccine back up to the high 80s, 86% specifically. Um, so 
clearly the booster shot in Israel, in the Israel data at least, has been very effective at getting people back to the immunity level that they were at before, at least in terms of the humoral immunity. We don't know the effect on, on uh, cellular immunity because we believe that that is fairly robust, remains to be fairly robust. robust. Uh, Fred may have more thoughts on that part. Yeah, uh, with regards to cell-made immunity, that does seem to be uh, last much, much longer. And uh, the studies of SARS-CoV-1, the infection in 2003, there actually is one study that, uh, which we've talked about before, that showed robust cell-made immunity um, uh, in 2020. So uh, there is long-term memory with regards to cell-made immunity. How that uh, reflects in protection from infection, uh, we really are not sure. And, and that's one of the issues. Um, do we, should we be following the antibody levels and neutralizing antibody levels as the gold standard? Or will cell-made immunity actually save the day? And, and I don't think we have that answer yet. It does appear that the incidence of infection has gone up the longer the distance from the uh, original immunization, and particularly in those that are elderly. But one of the things we have to keep in mind is that we've been conditioned over the course of this uh, epidemic, pandemic, that uh, to be scared of infections. Once you've been vaccinated, an infection is not does not have the same risk of a hospitalization or death that it had before. So. we've got to be careful. Again, it's a different kind of apples to oranges comparison is infections and unvaccinated versus infections and vaccinated. Clearly, the ideal is to eliminate all infections. And if we can do that with an additional shot without an additional safety concern, that would be wonderful. Um, And that's what we're going to have to see. What is the safety profile of the third shot? And that's that's what I'm kind of looking to see more data on before the, the we get to September 20th, where the White House has indicated they're pushing for uh, addition to the EUA. Uh, really, the acid test, the most important thing is to prevent hospitalizations. Uh, so if you get a mild infection, uh, that's not a huge problem. In fact, you may get a little boost in your immunization. That's that's a booster uh, unto itself without causing serious harm to anyone. So I think that is the most important. Um, are we still preventing hospitalizations? I can tell you we, had, uh, we have graphs from UF Health showing that 96% of all inf- hospitalizations are in those that were not vaccinated. We only see a 4 to 5% hospitalization among those that were vaccinated and very, very few of those end up in the MICU. And as far as I know, I, I'm not sure about this, but I'm not sure there have been any deaths, but I can't swear to that part. Go and, ahead. and remember, when we look at coronaviruses over history, you know, four, five, it's either four or five of the most common causes of the common cold are coronaviruses. So coronaviruses, they're, they're a, a kind of a normal part of our uh, biome. And other coronaviruses our bodies have learned to live with. And eventually, that's probably what will happen with this one. It's just how far off is eventually. As a bottom line conclusion, are you advising people to get a booster or third vaccine? 
David, I feel I feel like for people who are under the current emergency use authorization, that ones that are immunocompromised, yes, I, I am urging them to go out and get get the third shot. For people who are relative, who might be relatively immunocompromised, which especially includes older people, um, and by older, that's a little soft definition, what you want to call older. Certainly people in their 80s, I feel strongly that they should probably get it as soon as it is legally permissible for them to get it. Um, I don't know what Fred's thought is on that. Yeah, there's no downside that I've detected in getting a booster. Of course, most important is to get people that aren't vaccinated, vaccinated. But in the United U.S., at least at this point, uh, you're not taking away vaccine from those that that have not been vaccinated by getting a booster. Um, in as far as the world goes, probably uh, we should not be worrying about boosters right now. We should be worrying about getting individuals who have not been vaccinated vaccinated. Bill and Fred, before we sign off uh, before the Labor Day holiday and with kids going back to school, is there anything else uh, that parents in particular, as well as uh, school administrators and teachers should be thinking about? Yes, David, this is not a COVID issue, although it's clearly related. Um, The country, across the country, is seeing an epidemic of respiratory syncytiovirus, or RSV. Um, It's unclear exactly why we are seeing such a large explosion in this, which is usually a, a a fall and winter disease, it probably has to do with the fact that people are unmasking after having spent a year in public fairly well masked. But that still doesn't explain exactly why it would would take off so much in an unusual part of the year. But if people are seeing colds, um, including bad cold symptoms, and they are negative on, um, on COVID, it's very likely that they're getting RSV. Yeah. And a key point here is if a school system mandates masks, it will also prevent the spread of RSV. So uh, you get a double benefit by having a mask mandate in your schools and that you protect against RSV, which can be very serious in younger children, and also protecting against uh, COVID-19. All right, last question is uh, about the efficacy of antibody tests. Any quick thoughts? The, the, the uh, antibody test has been recommended as an epidemiologic tool. In other words, epidemiologists want to know the overall incidence and um, number of cases in their area, uh, many of which may have been asymptomatic. That's a great way uh, to mark uh, how many people have actually been infected. With regards to individuals, um, it really is not helpful. Uh, for the most part. Uh, The problem is that these tests are either positive or negative. Uh, They don't tell you the levels of antibody uh, and and really quantitation would be most helpful, but uh, most of these tests are not quantitating. In my estimation, it's a waste of money. I want to thank both of you for not only the advice, but really tracking the issues so very, very carefully and without any political bent. Bill and Fred, thanks again. Thank Thank you, David. Dr. Bill Lang is an expert in public health responses to biological incidents, including pandemics. Dr. Fred Southwick is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Both doctors are part of the RAIN Expert Network. 
Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. Sign up for our coronavirus solution and get critical information on the COVID-19 pandemic delivered daily. Visit us at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening. 